0: What's up, ladies and gentlemen, we're back on the Kaderna podcast, and today I'll be chatting with Hugh McTavish. Now, it's not often that we have someone in politics here on the show, but let's be real, public policy affects all of us. Hugh is currently running for governor of the state of Minnesota, and I know many of you out there are obviously tuning in from another state, but Hugh's insights can be applied pretty much anywhere. So let me give you a quick bio before we dive into our conversation. Hugh McTavish has a PhD from the University of Minnesota and is a biochemist and immunologist. He also has a law degree from the University of Minnesota. In his public declaration of his candidacy, McTavish discussed governing with the goal of happiness in his innovative proposal, Jury Democracy, which we'll explain more in this wide-ranging conversation on pretty much all the hot-button issues that folks are concerned about today. So without further ado. Here is Hugh McTavish. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil.
1: If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out.
2: Change is the only constant. The Canada Podcast.
0: What prompted you to, to say, hey, I want to get into politics?
2: Uh, yeah, I've never run for office before. Um uh, I first started thinking about it because of the, the COVID lockdowns. So I was uh, I'm, I was very anti-COVID lockdown. I was almost certain from the beginning that uh, this was going to cause vastly more harm than good, and that turns out to be the case. Um, the only question is whether it accomplished anything positive at all, and I think the best estimate of that is no, it did not, uh, but it caused an increase uh, um increase in in suicides, drug overdose deaths, alcohol deaths. So we killed, the lockdowns wind up, also caused an increase in murders. The lockdowns will wind up killing about 100,000 Americans uh, in the, that way from the increased deaths in the, those regards uh, and through one in five Americans into clinical depression. So I was nothing oh, and absolutely nothing would be worth throwing one in five of us into clinical depression. Um, so I was uh, I was outraged about that. Uh, that pretty much led me to running into to the idea of running for governor. And then I'd had this idea for jury democracy that we're going to get into, which is really the reason I'm running for governor. Um,
1: I had that idea
2: like 25 years ago and uh, realized thought I'd always always thought I'd write a book about it. And then realized that. Um, uh, well people don't read books much anymore and a better way of getting this into public debate would be to run for office and ideally win and implement it and then it, it would really be something that uh, people would have
0: okay. to consider so two things just to kind of take a step back i know you're running for governor in minnesota i'm here in jersey i think what a lot of people think of when they hear COVID lockdowns probably the the most notorious maybe was california um, just to give some context for our listeners that are all around the country, how exactly did Minnesota handle COVID just in summary, we were,
2: on the, we were on the strong end of the lockdowns. Uh, the governor is Tim Walls, the Democrat, uh, pretty much followed the, the democratic party's playbook on this, uh, um, did what he was told to do by Anthony Fauci. Uh, so we had seven, we had a stay at state home orders for seven weeks. Um, we, the schools were closed. Most of the schools in the state were closed for two years. Um, and, um, the rest of it, we had mask mandates. Uh, I don't know exactly. It probably had mask, had a statewide mask mandate for five months or something. I'm not sure exactly the dates, um, yeah. we still had, uh, for, re- con- re- um, for concert venues, masks are still required in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um. Yeah. And for re- restaurants, they were, they were required, uh, the mayors of Minneapolis and St. Paul mandated that uh, um, you had to wear a mask in a restaurant or a bar um, in, what, spring of this year, I guess, for a month or so. They had that in place. She did a fantastic job of destroying the businesses of restaurants and, and bars in Minneapolis and St. Paul.
0: Oh, I bet. And I know that's been one of the big gripes kind of throughout is, is they just got absolutely hammered. And at least here, like speaking from from Jersey, and at least what I see anecdotally is that most things uh, are kind of back to normal. I know you mentioned that concerts and things you still have to have the mask on. Um, any other lingering effects in Minnesota or have you gotten back to status quo?
2: It's back to normal. You still see people wearing masks, um, uh, which I think is is foolish. Um, the the data says the masks make no difference in spreading. Made no difference in spreading COVID. A mask mandates made no difference. Wearing a mask makes no difference for anybody other than yourself. Makes probably a very small uh, effect um, of reducing your own likelihood of getting COVID. But the far more important thing is to is to wash your hands. Um, both to benefit others and to benefit yourself. Um,
0: and, and, so you're a, and just to give some people you, you know, your background, you're a PhD in biochemistry and immunology, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, it, it, did you feel like that was maybe even uh, what gave you more passion kind of behind this, You know, having at least some sort of background, maybe not an MD, but at least kind of knowing a little more than the average Joe about this?
2: yeah yeah well i think i know more than the mds actually but <laughs> <laughs> um uh yes that I, I i you know to be honest i don't know that that my it's it's really not biochemistry or immunology uh that is it, um it does to be honest it, it does give me some greater credibility, but I'm not sure that's the reason I should have greater credibility. My being a scientist makes me good at, makes me open-minded and makes me look at the evidence. So what you should do if you're a good scientist is you've got a hypothesis and then you do an experiment, you look at the evidence uh, and see whether your hypothesis was right or not. Uh, And if the evidence is not consistent with your hypothesis, then you say, I was wrong. Uh, Reality is correct. That's not what happened with the masks, for instance. We had, uh, the government had this hypothesis that masks would reduce the spread of COVID. We've done the experiment. They they literally did an experiment in Denmark where they had 4,000 people wearing masks and 4,000 people not wearing masks before they had, uh, uh, before everybody was wearing masks uh the people wearing masks were very compliant as people are in clinical trials they changed their masks more they were wearing surgical masks which is not the cloth ones so that was that was they were wearing the good masks they changed them more than once a day which nobody does in the real world um and yet there was no significant difference in infection rate between the people wearing masks and people not wearing masks and with other experiments have been done in the past, and that was already the data. What the data suggested that there, that masks made no difference in spread of upper respiratory tract infections. Um, but the government has insisted, you know, just, just ignored that evidence, ignored the evidence going into this, ignored that clinical trial in Denmark, tried to, to uh, suppress it so nobody found out about it, and continued to insist that uh, that masks worked and that in fact that it was the best thing to do to reduce the spread of COVID, which is absurd. So it has no effect at all. The far, by far the best thing to do is to wash your hands or maybe the best thing to do is if you're feeling sick to stay home and, not, and uh, isolate yourself so you're not spreading it to others. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's no point in staying home if you're not symptomatic. Um, um, and uh, so anyway, I think those are the two things that make a difference that the data says make a difference is stay home if you're symptomatic and wash your hands often.
0: Yeah, and I know it seems like there's, I'm happy to say that at least it feels like it's in the past, but there's just so much, um, it was crazy. I mean, how quickly COVID became kind of this politicized issue that, you know, it's kind of like you had a belief, you had to kind of stake your flag in the sand and then defend it with your life that, you know, you couldn't really kind of adapt that, you know, all right, maybe we can go back to work or maybe we shouldn't go to work. It was, it just got so tense, you know, that it was uh, yeah, a it's wild like- time.
2: It's crazy to me. I don't know why this became so politicized and why um, uh, why the Democrats and liberals insisted on on all this stuff. Um, when you know, the, I mean, they insisted on destroying education and not just education, but childhood for our children for two years. Uh, yeah. No benefit to them. Children are nobody knows this, but children are one tenth. The risk of dying from covid that they are of dying from the flu if you're infected with covid and you're you're under age 18 your risk of dying from that infection is one-tenth of your risk when you're infected with the flu uh, so it's much for children it's much much less serious than the flu uh, so if we were going to do de- Close the schools for the benefit of children, we should never have had schooling in this country. We should never have allowed schools to be open. <laughs> and, and also, closing the schools made no difference in the spread of COVID. This was a bit of a surprise from the data, but it makes no difference in the spread of COVID to either children or to teachers, whether a school is closed or not. Teachers are just as likely to be infected staying at home as they are going to school and teaching children. Um, yeah. Well, I think that was
0: a lot of the, the argument, too, so- is you know. That, that a teacher would say we you know we can't go to school or a student would not want to go to school but then they they still wanted to go out and maintain some sort of social life and um you know in, in some respects it was just kind of like we're, we're socializing in a different venue rather than a school building it might be uh you know just wherever else you know that that, that person hangs out at
2: yeah yeah um yeah there's some of that but it's i mean the data says that it Closing schools made no difference in the spread of COVID to either children or teachers, but that's not true of, well, we we never tried closing schools, but uh, for colds and flu, those schools are hotbeds of transmission of those. So it actually was not a, it was not an unreasonable supposition that closing schools would reduce the spread of COVID, but turns out that's not, it didn't, turns out it didn't.
0: Okay. And now, moving forward, we're looking towards the future. You know, some of this is behind us. Obviously, things have changed dramatically as we, we return to normal. And now you're on this platform of jury democracy, which I'm sure a lot of people have not heard of that before. Can you just kind of define that for the layperson, what exactly that means?
2: Yeah. Uh, um, no, nobody would have heard of that because it's my invention, basically. Or the term is okay. the Term is me. Um Jury democracy is a system of having uh all of us ordinary people make the actual decisions for government uh decide which laws get enacted uh, under my system we would invite a large statistically valid sample of the population drawn from registered voters uh, 500 or more is a statistically valid sample uh with um, uh, it gives you essentially the same result you would get if you could call everybody call 500 or more people to the State Capitol, have them sit like a jury on one particular bill or proposal. So they're just listening and they they would listen to the evidence for and against that one bill or proposal. Both sides would get the chance to make their case, would have as much time as they reasonably need to make their arguments and introduce their evidence. and then the jurors would break into smaller groups of 12 to talk about it with each other. I think in that process, you're gonna learn from each other because uh, people have different life experiences. You're gonna learn how this would ex- affect affect other people with their life experience uh, and then vote by secret ballot. And I would require, actually for new laws, I would require 55% majority to pass, which is outside of the margin of error with 500 or more people, the margin of error is about 4%. Um, so it's outside the margin of error. So you can pretty much be guaranteed that if you had called everybody in the state, you would have had a majority vote in favor of this. But we're making policy based on evidence and reason. So it's we're not asking people's opinion just off the street. What do you think? Should we, uh, should we raise the capital gains tax rate or not? Uh, we're... Introducing the evidence, economists can testify on the capital gains tax rate, for instance, what would be the effect if we raised the capital gain? What would be the effect on employment? How much more revenue would we get, um, uh, et cetera? Uh, and they can listen to that evidence just like jurors do in a civil or criminal trial and become quite well-educated. In most cases, they would know more about that issue than legislators do by the end of the end of the trial. Uh, or the
0: ha- If I could, how, we, how does that differentiate itself from just democracy that we've known forever, where you have two candidates that are out there everywhere campaigning and then also debating, and then you have the populace is able to say, okay, I'll cast my vote based on everything that I've heard. You know, aren't we kind of already this big jury by by virtue
2: of voting? No, because s- several advantages of this system over voting. One one with voting, you the two two candidates have... Um, one who 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 you hear the message from and how often you hear the message is determined by money, determined by their campaign contributions, and how much they appeal to cor- corporations and wealthy interests and the power- people who are already powerful. Uh, two the um, whereas in this case the the deciders the jurors are picked at random, uh, so they're they represent the whole cross section of society. Um, uh, number two the um, uh, with candidates, they have they have a slate of positions. Uh, they, um, y- you know, they're uh, Republicans uh, generally want lower taxes, um, claim to want smaller government, but don't actually do anything to make the government smaller. Um, uh, anti-abortion, um, anti-gun control. Um Etc. Anti anti environment generally. The government, the Democrats are on the opposite ends of those. You may you may be an environmentalist who opposes abortion. You may, like the Pope, think abortion is a bad thing, but we should control guns. Who do you vote for there? You, you vote for one or you know nobody's representing all of those posi- each of those positions separately. So you're voting for somebody where you agree with seventy percent of their positions and disagree with thirty percent of their positions. But you get the thirty percent that you disagree with when you vote for that person. Uh, with the jury democracy, we vote on one proposal at a time. So you're only enacting the one that one thing. You can vote on abortion specifically. You can vote on gun control specifically. Vote on the, the environment or the capital gains tax rate specifically. Um, so you get each individual each uh, um, position separately. Um, and also, you're not on a campaign. You're even the uh, voters are not perfectly informed a lot of the issues the candidates don't tell you about uh, or they don't emphasize so you don't and most most voters aren't paying that much attention so they don't really know even if they're paying attention they don't know a lot of things the candidate stands for because the candidate never talks about it or the press never talks about it and many of them are not paying attention so they know even less than that um and certainly don't know each issue in depth. In this case, you're gonna know the issue in depth. You, we're not asking again for the capital gains tax example. We're not asking for your snap opinion on whether the capital gains tax should be raised or lowered. Uh, you get to think about that and hear all the evidence and think about you know nothing but the capital gains tax rate specifically for a day or two or however long it takes to consider this.
0: So- One of the the questions I have, I guess, maybe playing a little bit of devil's advocate here is when I've, you know, just kind of studied, I guess, leaders over time, presidencies over time, there's kind of seems like sometimes a a president or governor will follow the polls. And other times they'll say, you know, I kind of have to do what I think is right right now based on my information. And that's why I got elected is to be the leader. It seems like what you're proposing, like the jury democracy, where however often you would be kind of having these hearings of, you know, bring 500 people in, let's hear whatever specific case it is. And then I assume that you would just follow how that, that case voted. Isn't that kind of like, I guess, where, where do you almost fit in as the leader? If it's almost like every month or every quarter, we're just going to do what these 500 people think.
2: It'd probably be every day. We've got 500 people coming in on one thing or another. Um, but um th- I leader, individual leadership is overrated uh, would be one answer to that. For instance, um, the stock market or NFL betting lines, that's the crowd. That's 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 the crowd picking the value of, of companies and estimating in the case of the stock market, basically how much they're going to how much money they're going to earn in the next few years. Um, those in and the NFL betting line, that's the estimate of the crowd is how much the best estimate of the point spread is going mm-hmm. to be. It's very difficult to beat that, no, uh, beat either of those. The, I mean, it can be done. Um, uh, I suppose people do it on the point spreads somewhat consistently. I'm not even so sure about that on the, on the stock market, as, as you're well aware. Uh, index funds beat most managed funds. So even professionals cannot match the, the estimate of the stock market. In county fairs, the... the um, If you you have a contest at a county fair to pick the weight of a pig or how many jelly beans there are in a large jar and everybody and you average everybody's guess on that, that average of everybody's guess will be very, very close to the correct answer uh, and better than 98% of the individual guesses at least. Uh, So um, so the idea that there's one savior who's gonna make better decisions than the crowd, that's just not the way the world works. The crowd makes better decisions than, than any one person. On, on reality, uh, I mean, on, on what, yeah, reality, what the facts are, what predictions of the future, and then the other part of But do you
0: think that there's certain, kind of in that same vein, that there's, there's a uh, kind of like an incubation period to some of these initiative, initiatives when they come into effect that there might be some short-term pain for a long-term gain or vice versa. And when you're dealing with people, with, with the populace, the polls change constantly. So I guess my thought would be, let's say you propose a tax for whatever reason and the people that day say, yes, that's a great idea, let's do it. And then six months later, it's totally not going the way that they thought it would or they want the results better or worse you know, sooner um and all like when does that go up again for another hearing and what if it completely goes to the other side then are you kind of like flip-flopping all through uh you know uh your term?
2: uh i think you have a hearing probably um once no more than once a year maybe maybe we'd allow one attempt at a repeal in the first year and thereafter no more than once every tw- every year um but Um, that's one of the virtues of this, I think, is you can do long-term planning. So I want, I want a 55% majority required to pass something. So um, in order uh, to flip that and reverse it, you've got to have a shift of 10% in public opinion. You've got to get to 55% against to reverse it. So you can probably plan on that policy being in place until, um, uh, until, the facts on the ground say it was a mistake, and then then you can get a change in opinion. But it's not gonna it's not gonna be reversed just because for whims of public opinion or because the other party you know Party A won with 51% of the vote and they imposed this policy. Four years later, Party B wins with 51% of the vote and they reverse everything Party A did. So it's impossible to do long term planning in our current system because everything gets reversed when the other party gets back in power. Uh, with this. You can do long-term planning. You can, you can, um, uh, anyway, yeah. You can do long-term planning. So I think that's another virtue of the system. It will be more sta- It will be quite a bit more stable than uh, than our current system.
0: Is there a precedent for this? I mean, it's it sounds like a, obviously a very unique idea. Is there something comparable that's been used in the past? Uh,
2: there's been. Um, uh, I'm not as up to date on the history of this. I really pretty much originated the thought myself, although there's been some, um, like people have suggested that we'd be better off selecting our, our representatives and senators by a lot. Uh, but usually that's phrased. I think they're, they're joking about that. Uh, and, um, uh, and if you actually did select people by a lot and they served for two years you know you wanted you, you said okay you're you won the lottery you're invited to be a representative in washington for the next two years most people would not want to disrupt their lives and move to washington so the people who did that would be very non-random um, this way in my system i'm just asking people to serve for a day or two uh so it doesn't disrupt your life um but uh i'm told that that iceland did amended their constitution by crowdfunding i think they are uh, crowd uh, sourcing so they um i'm not sure exactly how they did it but that they, they took suggestions from everybody basically on the constitution there have been advisory cities I, I i'm told i think there's a australia maybe in one province or town or another they had a Committee of hundred randomly selected citizens advise on things. They didn't actually give them deciding power. They just could make suggestions. Um, whereas I want to, I want to give them the actual power. I would keep the elected legislature in place. Incidentally, so if the if the jury really goes off the rails or they enact communism or something that that really really is unacceptable to the elected leaders, the elected leaders will will reject that and it won't 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 pass into law. Um, but I would require that the, if something passes the jury, the legislature has to hold a vote on it. I would amend the Constitution to require that when something passes the jury, the legislature has to hold a recorded vote on it.
0: So essentially, does that mean like they this jury of 500 random people kind of get a say, but then it does ultimately go to the legislators?
2: Uh, they, it's more than a say to a, a law. Also, anything passed by the legislators would have to pass the jury. So um, uh, okay. they're both, they, they both have to have to. They both have veto power over it. Basically,
0: got it. Got it. Got it. It it just seems like this would be. Um, it's an interesting idea for sure. But it seems like it would be difficult. When you said that these could be hearings that would occur every day, um, I know everybody I know, myself included, you know, hates when you get that notice in the mail for jury duty. Um, any, what would be that incentive or how do you think that would unfold of trying to get 500
2: people like every single day to, I would, to pay, people, I would pay people min- minimum wage, maybe, maybe mm-hmm. one and a half times minimum wage for their time. Uh, I would give them a travel reimbursement. Um, but I'd also, I'd make it voluntary. Uh, um, I kind of think civil and criminal juries should probably be voluntary too, but, but certainly this should be voluntary, I think. Um, so if you don't want to participate, that's fine. It just means more power for the people who want to participate, want to govern their own lives. Um, it would be my attitude on that, and it would not be a it would not be burdensome. Like I say, I think most things most things don't take that long to explain. Uh, so most hearings should last no more than two days, I think. Um, and. Um, In Minnesota, we got 3.5 million registered voters. So if we had 500 people serving on each jury, uh, that would be, um, let's see, 7,000 juries before everybody served once. So we could have, um, uh, uh, that would be several years. My goal would be that people serve once, um, somewhere between once every four years and once every 10 years. I think once a year would be too much, would be too burdensome. Um, but once every four years or once every 10 years is not, I don't think that's too burdensome.
0: Okay. And have you, I assume you've been kind of broadcasting for this for some time. Like when did you first make this announcement that jury democracy was one of your real, um, kind of virtues that you're campaigning on?
2: Uh, I think the press conference announcing my run was in, um, uh, what in April, maybe, uh, or may we got the signatures in may to get on the ballot. Um, and how is it
0: resonating? Is this something that you, you're feeling is really kind of gaining ground, or is it something that people are averse well, to? Well, I need to get the, word,
2: get the word out, but nearly everybody, not not nearly everybody, the, the, the majority of people I talk to face-to-face or in person think it's a very good idea, um, and... No, it may be politeness, but nobody I talk to face to face thinks it's a terrible idea. Um, when I send out emails and texts, of course, you get a lot of "fu" responses and stuff, as always. <laughs> on social media. But, um, uh, uh, which is another thing, actually, about the juries. I think we you know, our debate has decayed, and our our social life has decayed because of social media, and because you're anonymous to one another, and people spew this vile hate uh, anonymously. When you are, when you're face to face with somebody, people are a lot nicer to one another. Uh, and I want the jurors to meet face to face. I don't want this to be a Zoom conference.
0: Okay. In switching gears a little bit, so like, let's say that this, you are elected or in jury democracy is something that you're unable to enact. One of the other things that you've really been talking a lot about is governing with the goal of happiness, not GDP growth. And that's a, another kind of slogan that I think is, uh, I don't know who would have want that. I mean, we're all after happiness, but then it's kind of like sometimes happiness runs into the harsh realities of if we have enough money or not, or if businesses are doing well. Um, and they, it kind of is a little bit of one hand washing the other at some point. So what do you mean by that? Like, how would you govern with happiness?
2: Um, I would just, I don't think our happiness is our goal of our government right now. And I don't think even individual wealth is our goal. I think aggregate GDP, the aggregate growth of the entire economy is the goal, the primary goal of government. And the reason for that is for corporations in particular, they don't, they don't care about individual wealth uh, and a steady state society where the population stays the same the economy stays about the same size their stocks would mostly stay flat and they need their stocks to go up so a population growth and therefore growth of the economy that comes from that benefits corporations They, they would in default if your business stays the same your your stock will go up by the growth of the population Um, But that hurts people, so economically, to to some extent, we've got a fixed pie, and so more people means less for each of us, Um, just to take one example. But happiness, to start with, I would govern for happiness, I think we need to to track statistics on happiness and depression and loneliness as carefully as we track statistics on unemployment and, and GDP now and other economic statistics so you track what's important to you we obviously money is very very important to our system currently happiness is not very important because we don't have any systematic tracking of depression or loneliness um, or happiness um, so to start with we, we track the statistics uh, and judge our policies by the effect on those statistics um, I would replace the mass I've got Three kind of concrete proposals. Uh, it may seem a little whim- whimsical, but I'm serious about them. Uh, one, replace the mask mandate, which hid our faces from one another. You know, you can't see people smiling and it makes it harder to communicate with one another and was a visual signal that we're in a catastrophe and we should all be depressed about it. Replace that and had the effect of making us all depressed about it. Replace that with a mask, with a uh, sorry, a name tag request. This was brought up in Seinfeld on an episode of Seinfeld one time, Kramer suggested everybody should be wearing a name tag on the streets of New York. And I'm serious about that. So I would have would have the state distribute good quality magnetic name tags for free. Just send in and tell us what your first name is, what you want to say, what to say on it. Um, in my case, in our case, the name tag says "Minnesota Nice" on it. Also, which just kind of a saying around Minnesota. People think that Minnesotans are nice. We like to think we're a nice people. So this would be a reminder to one another to be nice, um, and I think help you to meet people, help social interaction. And that's going to make us happier. Uh, it wouldn't be mandatory. It'd be a request. Um, um, second one would be walks, which would be mandatory for businesses to give. so that that at the same time every week, I'm saying Thursdays at two o'clock, uh, everybody's asked to go outside and take a walk. Uh, so you get outside, get a little fresh air, get a little exercise. That's all good for your happiness and your life slows down your life a little bit. That's good for your happiness. Um, How does
0: that go in the uh, winters meet, in Minnesota? Meet your neighbors.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that's, you know, we're, we're hardy people here. So we uh, <laughs> go outside in, in the winter. Uh, and meet your neighbors and uh, maybe make a new friend. So that's all going to help make you happier. Um, and the third thing I talk about is dogs. The easiest, Just about the easiest way to be happier is to get a dog. Uh, and... Um, so the one thing I would do in that is basically mandate that apartment buildings have to allow dogs and cats. Uh, they, sh- they should keep a few units without them for people who are allergic to them. But most renters or a lot of renters in a lot of apartment buildings, they're not allowed to have pets. And that's detrimental to their happiness.
0: That, those are three things. I mean, I got to be honest, I love them. Because I think when you go to any sort of fundraiser, political function, networking event the first thing they do is give you a name tag so that Mm -hmm. it just, you know, starts conversation and and meeting people that, and I know that would be a request, which I think is nice. I I know people hate mandates just by nature. It's not something we like. That's, that's really cool. I've, I've been a dog guy all my life. Ever since I was born, we've always had a dog. I have a dog now. um, It is true. It's man's best friend. Those are such simple things. It seems like, um, that I'm sure somehow people will shoot holes through that, but it seems so normal. The one thing that I, I want to kind of piggyback on, and I think it was a great point you made that, you know, we're in the business now of tracking everything, every piece of financial data or statistic we can come up with, we have, but it's true. It's like the one that's not really measurable is happiness aside from maybe clinical depression or some of the things you mentioned before, like with, with COVID and um, you know, the issues that we had. So how, you know, how might you do that? How would you go about saying, you know, right now, our country or our state is happier than two years ago? Or um, um, do you have an idea of how that would actually unfold?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, social scientists have looked at that. They, they've got systems for measuring, measuring that. On happiness, um, people have tried to do it various ways, but one um, you know, what, a couple of ways I'm familiar with, basically just ask people how happy they are. And most people say they're, they're happy and that number fluctuates a bit. And there's, there's um, uh, tracking, um, you know, from that that says uh, some countries are happier than other countries. Um, and uh, so mostly you just ask people how happy they are. You can ping them with a, um, uh, a, a ping or whatever at a random time of day. Uh, on their cell phone or whatever, and ask th- what their mood is at that moment. Um, uh, yes. So you can get some statistics on that, uh, or ask not just what their mood is, you could ask a few questions related to mood, you know, um, you could ask when was the last time you talked to a, a friend, when was the last time you had a half-hour conversation with a friend. Um, Uh, for the loneliness so you can measure that in various ways so there anyway there's there's a lot of innovative innovative, people have thought about it um, more than i have and uh, people have developed some ways to ways to measure this stuff Um, you do sometimes hear that we're having an epidemic of loneliness uh, which i think is true and um so i'm not sure exactly what they mean by that or what their data is on that other than perhaps just asking people how lonely there are asking them how many people in your life you consider to be good friends that you can confide in with your troubles
0: and then what's the consequence of that like if you do come up with uh, some sort of protocol to go out there and pull the people and and i always like to quote abe lincoln when he said happiness is a choice and mm-hmm. i think that's where you know, you'll find some people that always say that they're happy because they want to be happy, and others that could be on the other side that always kind of have a mood. And yep. and then everybody kind of there's there's a whole mix, of course. So maybe you can track an overall mood of of the populace. Um, if you see it tilt one direction or the other, then what happens as a politician is there a, a follow up to that?
2: Well, you would have seen, you know, on COVID, for instance, if we'd been tracking this and the lockdowns, you would have seen a huge crater of happiness and a mountain of depression. The, the clinical depression rate in one paper from JAMA, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, the baseline clinical depression rate in the United States was 8.5% in 2019, which is pretty bad, worse than most countries. Um, and uh, that went to 20 over 27% in the midst of the lockdown. So the lockdowns through one in wow. five of us in clinical depression. Um, so, you know, if we'd been tracking that data and paying attention to it, um, that would have come out. It should have been front page headline on the newspapers, and everybody should have been saying, "This was the catastrophe. We need to reverse course. Nothing is worth throwing one in five of us into clinical depression."
0: OK, so, it, it, yeah, I see where, you know, if you can really kind of underscore that, then it can start to influence a policy. Yeah, you know, I, the that's,
2: that's kind of a rare case, I guess, where you can pretty much say this policy, this policy caused this increase in depression. There's obviously nothing else that had that effect at that time. Yeah, when
0: it's so overwhelming like that, without a doubt. Uh,
2: other things, you know, you tweak the capital gains tax rate or something. Presumably that's not going to have a measurable effect on happiness. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, but you can keep it as, as your, your general goal, I think, and and say we're on the right track or we're on the wrong track.
0: Okay. And one of the, the last items we have here, so just to kind of recap, what you're running on is jury democracy, uh, opposing the COVID lockdowns, and then a new theme of governing with the goal of happiness. And then lastly, I know another very important issue to a lot of folks out there is restoring the environment. So what are some of your thoughts around that?
2: Yeah. So I want to not, I'm, I'm big environmentalist. I want to not just protect the environment. I want to restore it. Uh, and so, um, I want to convert half of the land in our plant on our planet and half of the land in Minnesota to back to nature. We currently use, um, we currently use 99% of native prairie, for instance, in the Midwest, in Minnesota and, and the rest of the Midwest. Uh, ni- over 99% of what was originally native prairie has been converted to farmland. Uh, the forests are, even the forests, I'm not sure I would necessarily count as converted to nature if we're logging them frequently and they're primarily for our use for wood and paper. Um, but maybe you know we can debate whether that counts as, as uh, restoring to nature anyway. Um, but yeah, I wanna, I ultimately we need as a species to learn to share the planet with other species and to live within the limits of this planet. That, that means we cannot have perpetual population growth. We cannot have perpetual economic growth. Uh, perpetual growth is the, um, is the ideology of the cancer cell. Uh, so we need to live within our means. I wanna convert half the state back to nature. I have a dream of that we have buffalo roaming wild across the Southern half of Minnesota again. Uh, and wolves in every, you know, not, not in the Twin Cities so much, presumably, but uh, but all over the state, in the southern part of the state, as well as the northern part of the, Minnesota has the, the biggest population of wolves in, um, in the lower 48 states, but they're confined to the, to the northeast corner of the state. And um, the Endangered Species Act says that we restore endangered species to their original range. The original range of wolves is the entire 48 states. We don't govern like we want to restore wolves to the entire 48 states. We, we govern, like, we just want to keep them as a museum piece, have a couple thousand of them. That's good enough. Let's keep the population down to a couple thousand when it ought to be a couple hundred thousand probably in, in, the, in the, in the, in the lower 48.
0: And how do you start doing that? Cause I think when you just say that, you know, that we want to protect the planet, we want to protect endangered species, Who's going to argue that? I mean, I think that's what we all want. But then one of the things you had just mentioned was the population growth, which has, I think a lot of people don't really understand over the past 100 years, what our world has done over the past 200 years. you know, If you go back to, I believe it was around 1800, we hit a billion people on Earth. It it took thousands of years to get there. Now we have almost 8 billion people on Earth. So what do you do? I mean, obviously we all take up space. We all start businesses. We wanna make money. We wanna do things. Where do we go us humans, you know, if we wanna try and do what you said of protecting more land?
2: Well, I think we have to have, we have to talk about overpopulation. I think most people, it's it's a taboo subject um, uh, because nobody wants to tell anybody else how many children they can have. but uh, the reality is we have to live in a finite, popul- finite population and, and uh, we need to, so we need to talk about that. The reality is we do need to decrease our population and not, not just stabilize it, but decrease it. Um, and to get there, people have to have fewer children. Uh, and, so, and so I think it's a moral issue how many children you have. Um, uh, that's probably not good politics to say that. Um, but uh, but I think it's true. Um, so I, I want to have just an acknowledge a statement from a jury. I, I want to s- introduce the idea to the jury and just get a statement from them that, um, yes, Minnesota is overpopulated, the United States is overpopulated and the world is overpopulated. Life would be better for humans and certainly for other species if we had fewer humans in each of those in, in our state, in our nation, and in the world.
0: It is. And that is, I mean, that's one of the hardest subjects. I'm sure that's probably why it doesn't get a lot of press time in, in politics is, um, uh, it's true. I mean, if you just look at the scientific facts, it's, uh, it's a difficulty that we have to deal with, but just saying less population, I mean, it sounds so morbid. It's almost like, how do you ever, um, try and impress that upon the people?
2: Uh, yeah, I, do, I mean, well, I don't, I don't think it's morbid, but, um, We do have a fetish with growth um, and celebrate growth of our cities, our states. Every everybody, every every, when we do the census every year, everybody's saying, "Hey, our state grew more than most," or "Oh no, our state grew less or shrunk, even shrunk." Oh my God, this is a disaster. but it's not a disaster for the people, it's not a disaster for the people living there when it's, it's an improvement for the people when the, when the population shrinks, uh, it just means you lose a congressional seat maybe. Um, uh, so I don't know, anyway, we, it's, um, yes, it's a, um, ta- in a way it's a taboo subject and we all celebrate growth. But on the other hand, I think most of us feel like life was better when we were kids, or when we were in our 20s, than it is now. And part of that is part of that is the growth, like what most of us, I think, remember the landscape where we grew up and the ponds and undeveloped fields fondly. And we go back and see all that's been developed. We're not happy about that. We don't think that was an improvement.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's true, and especially when you deal with younger generations, where it might be a bit different. Is it's not thinking about a pond; it's you know maybe thinking we played on a playground instead of just in an iPhone, you know, all day long mm-hmm. on uh, on social media or something. So it's it's kind of like the scenery is changing in more ways than one, both with nature but also with technology.
2: Yeah, that's that's true too. Yeah. I, um, anyway it's it's human nature i guess we want everything to stay the same uh um (laughs) yeah at least good stuff to say that stay the same and uh, i'm I'm certainly like that i think um i think email was an improvement but i don't really i'm not so sure about texts and cell phones and certainly social media i think was uh has made things worse uh for for us Um, yeah
0: there's certainly pros and cons to a lot of this and uh this was, this was really informative, Hugh. I think uh, we covered a lot of ground here and I think it's applicable to everyone no matter where you are. These are issues that we all struggle with to try and improve upon next time.
1: This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Coderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC PAS. OSJ, 300 Broad Acres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Phone number 973-244-4420. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Haderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California insurance license number 0K04194.